Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell testifies before a Senate committee today and warns the central bank may have to push interest rates higher to curb stubbornly high inflation. The latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More on Powell's proposal coming up. The defamation case against Fox News and its reporting about the 2020 election results. Legal experts say the network could be in real trouble. They had a motive to put false things on the air. What was the motive to win back those viewers and that it was rife throughout the uh, organization? We'll hear from Colin Kaepernick on his book, Change the Game, about his pivot from baseball to football and how he found himself in the process. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Two Americans who were abducted in Mexico last week are safely back on U.S. soil but two other members of their group are dead. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the Biden administration is working with the Mexican government to bring back the victims' remains. The four Americans had gone to Mexico for a cosmetic surgery procedure when they were caught in a firefight between rival drug cartels and abducted. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the consulate in Matamoros worked well with local authorities to recover them. We thank our Mexican and U.S. law enforcement partners for their efforts to find these innocent victims, and the task forward is to ensure that justice is done. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the U.S. is doing everything it can to dismantle the cartels, which he says are responsible. The two survivors were brought back across the border near Brownsville, Texas. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Despite the risks, according to Patients Beyond Borders, a medical tourism guidebook, Mexico is one of the leading destinations of foreigners seeking more affordable medical procedures. In 2020, it projected that more than 2 million Americans would travel to another country for medical treatment nearly tenfold from a decade earlier. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has joined a chorus of widespread attacks on Fox News host Tucker Carlson for his portrayal of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol after Carlson accessed thousands of hours of security footage. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy granted Carlson and his team access to more than 40,000 hours of tapes surrounding the attack, drawing concerns the host would use the tapes to spread a new wave of disinformation. McConnell, holding up a statement, said he aligned himself with remarks issued earlier today by U.S. Capitol Police Chief Thomas Major to his rank and file slamming Carlson's, quote, offensive and misleading conclusions about the siege. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he supports a bill introduced in the state legislature that would ban abortions after six weeks. In a State of the State speech today, DeSantis outlined his priorities for the upcoming legislative session. Here's NPR's Greg Allen. After speeches in Texas and California promoting his new book, the likely 2024 Republican presidential candidate is back in Tallahassee. Governor DeSantis talked about his record opposing federal COVID policies and limiting how schools can discuss race, sexual orientation, and gender identity. We did it our way, the Florida way, and the result is that we are the number one destination for our fellow Americans who are looking for a better life. DeSantis says with his nearly 20-point win in November, voters have given Republicans a mandate. Along with a ban on abortions after just six weeks, he wants lawmakers to expand school vouchers, eliminate college diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and pass an open carry law. Greg Allen, NPR News. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey says she is getting closer to hiring a new general manager and safety chief for the MBTA. WBUR Steve Brown reports she's already missed her self-imposed deadline to do so. In her inaugural address, Healey said she'd make the appointments within her first 60 days in office. With it now being day 61, she said she has taken an aggressive and extensive search. We are well on our way through that process, and I hope to have announcements very soon. But I think the process has taken the time necessary in order to make sure that we're getting the very best talent here into the state. Healy said she anticipates an announcement in days, not weeks. She also said the new safety chief will sit within the Department of Transportation and will have complete oversight over what's happening around all modes of transportation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. 
The MBTA has removed about 100 ceiling panels from the Harvard T station in Cambridge for inspection. It comes after a close call last Wednesday. That's when one of the corroded panels fell and nearly hit someone. The panel weighed 20 to 25 pounds. Nobody was hurt. The T plans to remove all the ceiling panels from the southbound side of the platform to do a thorough inspection that is expected to take place in about a week. People traveling on Amtrak's Down Easter train will be unable to purchase an adult beverage on part of their three-hour trip. That's because the train passes through New Hampshire and laws there prohibit serving alcohol that was purchased out of state. New Hampshire officials requested the policy change take effect March 20th. Passengers will still be able to buy an alcoholic drink while the train is in Massachusetts or in Maine. The Downeaster runs 145 miles from Brunswick to Boston. And a new survey finds a majority of voters in Massachusetts support rent control. The poll was commissioned by the political consulting firm Northwind Strategies. 65% of voters surveyed say they definitely or probably would support a proposal to let communities put restrictions on rent increases. 25% said they would oppose or probably oppose it. 37 degrees now in the Boston area. What we have this afternoon should be pretty much what we get through Thursday, minus the breaks for sunshine. Lots of clouds around tonight, tomorrow, and Thursday. Strong winds. Temperatures during the day about 42 or 43 degrees for a high. Sunshine could return for real on Friday. Again, 37 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The chairman of the Federal Reserve offered a stark warning about inflation today. In front of the Senate Banking Committee, Jerome Powell said the road back to stable prices looks to be long and bumpy. And he says it will likely take interest rates that are higher than expected to get prices under control. The Fed has already raised interest rates eight times in the last year, and the prospect of even higher rates is weighing on the stock market. And Pierre Scott Horsley is here to explain. Scott, this is a much more ominous outlook than Powell was offering a month ago. What changed? Yeah, inflation's proving to be more stubborn than a lot of forecasters had expected. And despite the Fed's best efforts to tap the brakes uh, with higher interest rates, uh, both hiring and spending have remained really strong. Uh, employers added more than half a million jobs in January. Uh, at the same time, shoppers were opening their wallets at department stores and restaurants and car dealers. All that spending and all that hiring tends to put more upward pressure on prices. Uh, now, there is some question about whether January's activity was uh, kind of a fluke driven by unusually warm weather that month. And we are going to learn a lot more in the next couple of weeks about how the job market and spending fared in February. But if the February numbers are anything like what we saw the month before, Powell says he and his colleagues are going to have to push the brakes a little bit harder. The latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. Most investors have been expecting the Fed to raise rates by a quarter percentage point at its next meeting in a couple of weeks. But after Powell's testimony today, markets are now betting on a larger half-point rate hike. Uh, The stock market isn't crazy about that idea. The Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled 575 points today, or about 1.7 percent. All right, so investors are not too happy. What are lawmakers saying about the Fed's plan? For the most part, lawmakers have been willing to give the Fed a lot of latitude to do whatever it takes to get prices under control. You know, nobody likes high inflation. But you are hearing some grumbling about the potential fallout of these higher interest rates, especially the possibility that it could lead to a weaker job market. Uh, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, who chairs the Banking Committee, says it's important that the Fed not undermine workers' newfound bargaining power. And Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren blasted the central bank strategy, saying it threatens to put two million people out of work. Chair Powell, you are gambling with people's lives. You cling to the idea that there's only one solution, lay off millions of workers. We need a Fed that will fight for families. Now, Powell says the Fed is not trying to put anybody out of work, but he does argue high inflation is also hurting families. Will working people be better off if if we just walk away from our jobs and and inflation remains 5 6%? Powell also warned that if high inflation were to become entrenched, then it would be hard to have a strong job market going forward. Let's talk about the debt ceiling. Powell was asked about that today as well. What did he say? Yeah, Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling or else by sometime this summer or maybe early fall, the federal government won't be able to pay all of its bills. 
House Republicans are demanding some unspecified spending cuts in exchange for their votes to raise the debt limit. Democrats say that's reckless and that the Republicans are treating the full faith and credit of the government as a bargaining chip. Uh, Powell was uh, trying to steer clear of this partisan fight today, but he did say there's only one way to avoid a potentially costly government default. Whatever else may happen will happen, but Congress really needs to raise the debt ceiling. That's the only only way out. And if we fail to do so, I think that the consequences are, are hard to estimate, but they could be extraordinarily adverse and, and could do longstanding harm. The last time we had a showdown like this back in 2011, it really rattled financial markets. And that's the last thing that a fragile economy needs now is a, a rerun of that costly game of chicken. NPR Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. California Governor Gavin Newsom sent a warning on Twitter to Walgreens yesterday after the pharmacy chain announced that it would only dispense a medication used for abortion in some states where it operates. Newsom tweeted, quote, California won't be doing business with Walgreens or any company that cowers to the extremists and puts women's lives at risk. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has been looking at what that means for abortion access and what's behind this decision from Walgreens. She's here to fill us in. Hey, Selena. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so let's back up for a moment. Can you just explain the role that pharmacies currently play in providing access to the medication we're talking about here? Right. So we're talking about mifepristone. It's one of two medications that's used to induce an abortion or to treat a miscarriage. It blocks the hormone called progesterone. And since the drug was approved in 2000, there have been lots of restrictions on on who can provide it, who can prescribe it, how patients can get it. They have to, you know, take it in a clinic in front of a clinician. Those rules loose, loosened a bit in the pandemic. And at this point, about half of all abortions in the country are done with medications. So it's a big part of the story. In January, the Food and Drug Administration announced that it would allow retail pharmacies to apply to be certified to dispense this medication for the first time. So that's a big deal for access. And for a lot of OBGYNs like Dr. Daniel Grossman at UCSF, it's long overdue. We now have a tremendous amount of evidence, including our own research, showing that pharmacist dispensing uh, mifepristone is safe and effective. And so finally, the policy is starting to catch up to the science. Hmm. After the FDA said that they could, Walgreens and CVS both announced that they'd be applying to be certified, but they're facing a lot of pressure since making those announcements. Wait, what kind of pressure? Well, Walgreens' board meeting was interrupted by some anti-abortion protesters in late January. Then 20 attorneys general from Republican states sent a letter in February to Walgreens and lots of other pharmacy chains warning them that if they allowed mifepristone to be sent through the mail, they would be violating a 19th century federal law. Now, the reason that we're talking about Walgreens today is because it actually responded to the letter. Other chains like CVS and Walmart and Kroger, which also got the letter, apparently have not responded at all. Walgreens did, and it said to the AGs essentially, don't worry, we'll only be dispensing this medication in places where we legally can. So I called up Lindsay Wiley, a health law professor at UCLA. I would imagine that, you know, CVS is feeling pretty good about hanging back and seeing how this plays out right now. (laughs) To be clear, nothing has changed yet. This is about an announced plan for expanded access to this medication through retail pharmacies. It's a fight about the future. But Wiley says it's an important fight now that states have much more influence over access to reproductive health care. Mifepristone, abortion pills, have become a political football for state elected officials, governors, attorneys general, to assert the power that they have. Okay, well, Selena, I mean, politics aside, what does Governor Newsom's announcement mean, practically speaking, this idea that California will not be doing business with Walgreens? Yeah, I put that question to Richard Dang today. He's the president of the California Pharmacists Association, and here's how he responded. That's a really great question and a question that we're trying to answer ourselves as well. (laughs) His best guess is that California might try to use its public health insurance plans like the Obamacare exchange plans, Medicaid, insurance for state employees to make those plans not contract with Walgreens. That would mean people with those plans wouldn't be able to get any of their medications filled through Walgreens. But... Wiley, the law professor, says executing on that would be super complicated since there are a lot of private insurance contracts involved. It would be super slow. It's also a guess. As I said, Newsom's office hasn't provided any details to NPR or other outlets about a timeline or specifics. 
Wiley says to her it's less about a policy and more about sending a message, which is what the Republican attorneys general were trying to do, too, mm-hmm. to use their clout to influence what these pharmacy chains do next when it comes to access to abortion pills. That is NPR's Selena simmons in. Thank you, Selena. Thank you. Ostriches are the biggest birds on the planet today. Males can tower nine feet tall, half of that their neck, and weigh in at more than 300 pounds. But there was once an even bigger bird, the elephant bird, which roamed Madagascar before dying out roughly a thousand years ago. So these are really big birds. They're something like nine feet tall. They weigh well over a thousand pounds. And they lay an, an egg that's like a foot and a half in length. They lay an egg a foot and a half in length. Gifford Miller is with the University of Colorado Boulder. He says elephant birds, which are distant relatives of emus and ostriches, once had the ability to fly. But when they landed in Madagascar, they may have encountered no serious predators, so they lost their flight skills and instead ballooned in size. They must have very flexible DNA that allows them to grow big fairly quickly. And they're at a size where they could sort of defend themselves for any natural predator who might be out there. Miller's colleague, Alicia Greeley, a researcher with the Australian government, says elephant birds are somewhat mysterious because there's not much left of them to study. The skeletal fossil record is pretty patchy. There's not a lot of complete bones. So instead of bones, they looked to the birds' fossilized eggshells instead, which litter sand dunes and beaches in Madagascar today. They're literally just lying there on the ground, tons of them. And to think that this is something that's a few thousand years old and still that well-preserved. And the eggshells, are they, they look like pottery. Uh, they're so strong. They're not at all fragile. Another advantage, the scientists say, is the eggshells preserve DNA a bit better than bone. Their team collected 960 shell fragments from sites all over the island. It was pretty exciting. We had a Malagasy guide with us uh, at all times that could uh, help us get around and negotiate with local little tiny kingdoms to get permission to be on the land and then to wander around and find these. Back at the lab, they ran a genetic analysis of the shards, and they found preliminary evidence for a previously unknown lineage of the birds in northern Madagascar. So that was kind of surprising because no skeletons have ever been found there. The results appear in the journal Nature Communications. As for what happened to the elephant birds, the scientists say no one knows exactly why they disappeared, but they did vanish sometime after the first humans arrived on Madagascar. Suggesting that some combination of hunting and habitat change might have made humans a predator that even elephant birds were unable to match. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, mounting evidence in the defamation case against Fox News. And in Georgia, we look at why protesters of a proposed police training facility are facing domestic terrorism charges. These stories and much more are coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Stocks took a downward turn today. The Dow lost nearly one and three quarters percent, 575 points, to finish the day at 32,856. S&P fell more than one and a half points to close at 3986. The Nasdaq dropped one and a quarter percent to settle at 11,530. A newly formed Boston biotech startup is trying to develop medicines that have fewer side effects. Ampersand Biomedicines is looking to create molecular technology that will make medicine work only in the parts of the body where it's needed. This targeted approach would limit side effects in organs where treatment is not required. The company launched today with a $50 million investment from Flagship Pioneering. That's a Cambridge life sciences firm that creates and supports startups. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Pretty brisk out there when the wind blows, and it should blow for the next couple of days anyway. Tonight, cloudy, windy, down around 29 degrees. Clouds should stick around tomorrow with highs in the low 40s again. Then ditto for Thursday. Gray skies, windy, right about 42. 37 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Before he was the face of a protest movement, before he was a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl, Colin Kaepernick was a teenager who, like many teenagers, was trying to figure out who he was and where he was going. Navigating the difficulties of of family, community, school, and major life decisions. Like whether to pursue baseball, where he had lots of offers from colleges and pro teams, or football, which, in his heart, he loved more. And what it meant that his adoptive parents were white, but the world saw him as black. So it's trying to navigate that while having a white family and being in a predominantly white community and trying to find ways to make sure that my identity and my blackness isn't stripped from me along that journey. His new graphic novel, written with Eve Ewing and illustrated by Orlando Caicedo, is about that time in his life. It's called Change the Game. At one point, young Colin Kaepernick decides to get his hair braided in cornrows. When we spoke, he said he'd been inspired by an athlete who played neither baseball nor football, the NBA superstar Allen Iverson. He was someone that I looked up to, and I saw him be so unapologetically Black and unapologetically himself. It was something that I aspired to, and I looked at that as an opportunity for me to be able to really take hold of my Blackness and do it in a way that I was proud of and I was excited about. And the difficulty with that is being in white culture um, with Eurocentric beauty standards, uh, navigating what their response to that was. At 15 years old, it took me, I think, about 14 years before I grew my hair back out. Wow. So it's really to show the impact those moments can have on a young man, on a young woman, and how that carries with them through life. This is not the first book that you've published that's aimed at younger audiences. You also, along with illustrator Eric Wilkerson, published a children's book called I Color Myself Different that charts a really pivotal moment in your younger life. And this book, Change the Game, of course, is a graphic novel. What made you want to put out a graphic novel? (laughs) There were a few reasons. One of the reasons growing up, I wasn't an avid reader because I didn't have stories or I wasn't introduced to books that had characters that I related to. Um, It wasn't until I read um, We'll Never Forget You, Roberto Clemente, that I saw another Black person as the lead of a book. It was game-changing for me. How so? Um, I, I knew there were other books out there and other opportunities to be able to find stories, to find narratives that I identified with. So what we're looking to do now is, for younger audiences, give them hopefully characters and stories that they relate to, but also give them pieces of knowledge and situations and try to help them navigate those in ways that I didn't have access to growing up and based upon conversations that I've had, a lot of other people didn't as well. When you're trying to correct a problem, you should start by looking in the mirror. That note my father left for me has stuck with me ever since. I was so mad at him in that moment. I learned a lesson that day I haven't been able to shake since. There are a lot of things around me I can't control, 
but I can control how I react to them, how I maneuver in a situation. That is an excerpt from the audiobook of Colin Kaepernick's Change the Game. You know, this book, um, towards the end, it shows you in one of the panels on the phone in an office receiving a phone call from a coach at the University of Nevada, Reno, offering you a football scholarship for the first time. And that's sort of where the book leaves your story. It doesn't delve into your pro football career. It doesn't delve into your college years. So I'm curious, from a storytelling standpoint, why stop there before you head off to the university, before we see you in the NFL? So we we end the story there, one, to make sure that uh, we don't have a never-ending book because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of story to tell. Uh, but the other part of it is we wanted to create a defining moment that younger kids and high school kids could identify with, which is that transition and decision to, of what to do after high school. And for me at that point in time, Baseball was the obvious decision for everyone around me. I had multiple offers. I had the MLB come and sit down in my living room and tell me they wanted to draft me. There was an obvious career path there. And I had not a single offer for football at this point, but it was what I loved and what I wanted to do in spite of everyone else telling me I should go a different direction. One of the last pages of this book ends with this image of you where you're surrounded by the bright lights. You've got that number seven red jersey on the gold pants. You're taking a knee and the image of you on a knee like that is one that is familiar for many people, even those who do not watch football. You have not played in the NFL since January 2017, six years ago at this point. I want to ask you, do you believe that the NFL has changed for the better since you were last on that field? (laughs) Uh, I haven't seen any substantial change. I think there is a a lot of work to do on that front. Um, Obviously, not playing and being out of the NFL for six years is an indictment on where they are currently at. So I wouldn't put them at the forefront of... uh, goodwill and best of intentions in how they operate. You know, I have to wonder, given all the time that's passed, given everything that has happened since you first took a knee during an NFL game, I wonder, removed from all of that, do you spend much time thinking about what your career might have looked like if you were still playing in the league? Or do you think that losing that career and some of those opportunities was key to doing something greater, to creating some lasting change? No, I think there's a this idea out there that those are mutually exclusive, and I don't subscribe to that. So I think people are multifaceted and multi-talented, and, and ultimately that's something that we want to make sure that message is being sent as well. We have the opportunity to move forward and not be pigeonholed into singular elements of ourselves. But do you, though, do you think back about what your career could have looked like, or or is this something that you don't consider quite as much at this point? My focus is always on what I can do moving forward. What can I do to change my my present and my future? Um, So training at 430 to be able to have the opportunity to make a comeback, absolutely. That's something I do five days a week still. But as far as looking back, that's not something I do. I, I'm looking forward to where can I have an impact? What are my passions? And a great example of that is Change the Game. And this book being able to come out, us being able to share this message with the youth, and it becomes a great opportunity for us to be able to create a, a future that looks different. Former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, his graphic novel, Change the Game, is out now. Colin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Bruins and Celtics have the night off tonight. Red Sox remain the only undefeated team in spring training. That is the longest unbeaten streak since 1951. Tonight they play the Atlanta Braves. The word on Red Sox first baseman Justin Turner is that he's recovering at home after he took a pitch to the face yesterday. Turner's wife says he had no fractures or concussion, but he did have 16 stitches. Turner joined the Sox in January.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters. Professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Personalized to your needs. Certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Did you hear this on Radio Boston? If you can't find the funny, it kills you, I think. You lose the joy of being alive, because no matter what's happening, it's still a miracle that we're here. And we wake up and we come to be the resident comedians on your show. If you can't find some joy and some gratitude for just even the miracle of being here, then what is what is the point of all of it? Bethany so. really wants you to invite us back. Yeah. <laughs> That's Radio Boston, weekdays at 11 and again at 3 p.m., only on 90.9 WBUR. Live. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Two Americans are back in the U.S. after surviving a deadly kidnapping in Mexico that left two of their companions dead. The survivors were turned over by Mexican police to U.S. authorities in Brownsville, Texas today, then taken to a hospital for treatment. The group had traveled to Metamoros just across the Mexican border for a medical procedure when they were likely caught in the crossfire of rival drug cartels. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration will ensure that justice is done. Attacks on U.S. citizens are unacceptable, no matter where or under what circumstances they happen. We will continue to work closely with the Mexican government to ensure justice is done in this case. A relative of one of the victims says they had traveled from the Carolinas, so one of them could get a tummy tuck surgery. Authorities say at least six Palestinians were killed in a gun battle between Israeli soldiers and militants in the occupied West Bank. Israel says its troops killed a Palestinian who, car- who carried out a deadly attack. We'll get more from NPR's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is praising Israeli troops for raiding the Janine refugee camp and killing the man Israel says was responsible for gunning down two Israeli settlers, brothers in their early 20s, last week in the West Bank. That attack prompted a deadly rampage of Israeli settlers on the Palestinian town of Hawara. Israeli border police are identifying the gunmen they killed as a 48-year-old Hamas militant from the Askar refugee camp. Israeli police say they also arrested his sons, who they said helped plan and carry out the attack. This military raid is the latest in nearly a year of deadly Israeli arrest operations deep inside Palestinian areas as local Palestinian militia proliferate and carry out deadly attacks against Israelis. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maury Healey says she will continue to stand up for Massachusetts as the federal government prepares to end the COVID public health emergency. President Biden says the emergency status will expire May 11th. Today, the governor told reporters that she plans to lobby the Biden administration, but she does not have any specific requests. Let me be here as an advocate for our state, and if there are things that we need to to ask the administration to consider as we move forward in the coming months with the expiration of the federal public health emergency, know that I will do that as your governor. The end of the public health emergency will mean you might have to pay to get a COVID test, and your insurance might not cover all types of telemedicine appointments. The state Senate is beefing up a proposed spending bill. This week, the Senate Ways and Means Committee recommends boosting the amount of state money available to match federal microelectronics grants. The money can be used by computer chip manufacturers to build new factories and expand production. Governor Healy says the state matching dollars should help ensure those projects can happen in Massachusetts. The full Senate will vote on the $1.2 billion spending and borrowing package Thursday. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell and the U.S. Department of Justice are formally opposing the merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. Campbell and the Justice Department filed a joint lawsuit today in Boston federal court that seeks to block JetBlue's acquisition of Spirit. The plaintiffs are concerned about the impact on competition. Campbell says the acquisition will result in higher prices for passengers flying in and out of Logan. JetBlue is the largest airline at the airport. Spirit is the largest ultra-low-cost carrier in the country. 
JetBlue says the merger would help consumers by creating a stronger competitor to larger air carriers such as Delta and American. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey of Massachusetts say it's long past time the country set aside a day to commemorate victims of the pandemic. Today, they reintroduced a bill that would designate the first Monday in March as COVID-19 Victims Memorial Day. The resolution was first introduced in 2021. The Centers for Disease Control says more than 1.1 million COVID deaths have been reported in the U.S. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. This is WBUR, 37 degrees now in the Boston area. Tonight's full moon may have to compete with a lot of clouds. Sky should be overcast pretty much all night, lows about 29. Not too much change in the weather for tomorrow or Thursday. Still cloudy, still windy. Temperatures still in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, more evidence is expected to be released in a $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox News. Outside legal experts say the network is facing real legal peril as the case lays bare how Fox repeatedly broadcast election fraud claims in 2020 and intentionally ignored strong evidence that those claims were false. An election tech company named Dominion Voting Systems says those lies badly damaged its reputation and led to death threats. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik is covering this lawsuit and joins us now. Hi, David. Hey, Elsa. So a lot of this evidence, I mean, it's been made public in recent weeks. What's been the reaction so far to all of it? Well, the evidence is pretty stark to read in black and white, and it's come in the form of uh, sworn answers to questions from Dominion's lawyers, but also these texts and emails that are showing top Fox News executives knew, their bosses, uh, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch knew, their stars knew that these claims being made about Dominion, somehow its machines and software were throwing votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden were baloney, no truth to it. But they also show that those executives and stars were desperate to maintain ratings, uh, desperate to hold on to the Trump voters who were the core of their audience, who were fleeing the network because it was the first on election night 2020 to call Arizona for Joe Biden. And so it's amazing to see this. Fox contends, look, this is cherry pick stuff. It's all out of context. But you've seen national headlines all over. One interesting group of people who say they're not surprised, a bunch of former journalists who used to work for Fox News who I talked to. Interesting. Tell us why they are not surprised by any of this. Well, they talked about how increasingly ideological and pro-Trump Fox News got over the years, but each of them pointed one way or another to the ouster of former Fox News chief, the late Roger Ailes. He's pushed out in summer of 2016 after myriad accusations of sexual harassment by women at Fox News, but he also had instilled this sort of intense discipline on the place. Here's what Julie Roginski, she was a former Fox News pundit and guest host, had to say to me about that. The people who stayed by the very nature of being allowed to stay, had to accept the notion that they were going to be led by the mob, and the mob was being led by Donald Trump. Now, Roginsky was among those alleging harassment. She's no fan of Ailes, but she said his loss meant that suddenly the stars were allowed to be bigger than the network. And you had this audience desperately hungry for red meat in the Trump years, and those hosts fed it for incredible ratings. And in a sense, what she and others argued was the audience was driving Fox rather than vice versa. You saw Tucker Carlson counter-programming in a way that you'd think Fox might crack down on in the current environment. He was promoting the idea just last night using video from the House of Representatives on January 6, 2021, trying to show that the people, the Trump supporters who sacked the Capitol and, and laid siege to it to try to block Joe Biden's certification as president were actually just peaceable people ambling gently through the corridors. Well, as this defamation case drags on, can you talk about the legal peril 
that is facing Fox right now. Well, so defamation is really high bar to meet. Uh, Dominion has to show that Fox uh, broadcast things that were damaging to its reputation, that were false, and that Fox either knew or should have known, uh, given the facts that were available to them, were untrue. Uh, legal experts say actually that there is le- real legal peril because even the evidence that's come forward just so far seems pretty overwhelmingly to show that and to show a motive which is unusual, but the stated motive for Fox to do this, which is the desperate effort to win back those ratings and win back, the, you know, that revenue. <laughs> Fox says it's reporting newsworthy allegations, uh, that it's doing so from inherently newsworthy people, that is the, the then sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump and his surrogates, and that no media outlet should want it to lose because then they too will be inhibited from being able to pursue potentially newsworthy things if they seem wild to others. That is NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. Thank you so much, David. You bet. In Atlanta today, activists are holding workshops on how to protest safely as a week of action continues against a planned police training facility. Meanwhile, violent protests broke out over the weekend at the site dubbed Cop City by protesters. Nearly two dozen now face felony domestic terrorism charges after attacking officers and setting fires at the site. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Emily Wu Pearson reports advocates say terrorism charges are an outsized punishment for protesting. More than 30 people were arrested Sunday at the site of the training facility. And on Monday, Atlanta Police Chief Darren Sheerbaum told city council members there's been a marked increase in aggression. It generally had been setting property on fire. We'd seen police cars set on fire, windows busted. But this was started as an attack against individuals, men and women who are employees of the city. These protests have been happening for over a year in the forest, where the 85-acre police and fire training facility is slated to be built at a cost of $90 million. In January, during a clearing operation, law enforcement shot and killed a protester after an officer was shot. In raids over the past several months, nearly 50 people have been arrested and charged for domestic terrorism. These are the first and only cases of domestic terrorism in this part of Atlanta. Warrants named their affiliation with the Defend the Atlanta Forest Movement as a reason. Activist Jasmine Burnett with Community Movement Builders has been part of the protests. She says the charges are a scare tactic. Slapping them with domestic terrorism is also an attempt to warn other people who are organizing against this, other activists, to be careful and to be scared um, in a way to try to silence our movement. We've never seen anything like this. That's Marlon Kautz. He works with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which helps people who were arrested while protesting. Honestly, I never really thought that I would see anything like this in Atlanta, a city which kind of prides itself on its, you know, legacy of civil rights. Georgia's Republican Attorney General Chris Carr tweeted he intends to prosecute the protesters to the full extent of the domestic terrorism law. He did not respond to a request for comment. Karen Morrison is a law professor at Georgia State University. She says typically violent protesters receive various misdemeanor convictions that have fines or only a year of jail time. A felony conviction of domestic terrorism can land someone up to 35 years in jail. It's going to be very hard to get anybody to want to protest anything in Georgia or indeed in any other state where where this kind of use of the criminal law is used. It seems way out of proportion. There's been a lot of nonviolent opposition to the training facility, especially from environmentalists who had hoped the largest forest in metro Atlanta would remain undisturbed. One of them is Jackie Eccles with the South River Watershed Alliance, who showed me around the forest last year. Do they want to build on um, the biggest contiguous piece of green space left? Why would they want to do that? Eccles and others heavily lobbied Atlanta city council members last year against the training center, but they lost. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says it's needed to help fill nearly 450 vacancies and attract new officers with state-of-the-art training in things like de-escalation techniques, community-oriented policing, and mental health. Meanwhile, some environmental groups are looking for ways to preserve green space around the police training campus with a series of parks and forest trails. As for the construction of the training facility, the county issued the first permits needed to start the project, and land clearing has started. For NPR News, I'm Emily Wu Pearson in Atlanta.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The winner of the most prestigious award in architecture was announced today. And the Pritzker goes to Sir David Chipperfield. If that's not a name you recognize or one that brings a famous building to mind, well, that's just the way the architect likes it, as he told NPR's Netta Ulubi. The Pritzker jury, in its citation, commended Sir David Chipperfield for designing buildings that are not, and this is a quote, instantly recognizable. I asked him if he thought that was fair. Yeah. I'm happy with that. Meet an architect understated in all things. Not one of your flashy starchitects, Sir David gets called a master of restrained opulence. When I asked what he was doing when he got the Pritzker call, he said, I was making soup and I was right in the middle of it and it was quite difficult to stop. This is a designer who loves process in his practice. Not one for splashy signature swoops or spirals. Chipperfield has designed dignified, elegant museums and additions to museums in Mexico City, St. Louis, and London, and the Public Library in Des Moines, Iowa. Architecture professor Mabel Wilson says a Chipperfield building works in harmony with its context. It's also a building that is very simple and precise with details of metals and stones and woods. But it isn't something that has a lot that comes at you all at once, but something that's very measured. In 1997, Chipperfield's firm was picked to renovate Berlin's Neues Museum. Here is a video from the museum on YouTube. It says on the west facade there is an inscription, only the ignorant hate art. The museum was built in the 1800s, bombed nearly to pieces during World War II, and sat as an East Berlin ruin for decades. The video says Chipperfield preserved the remnants as part of the design. Also in Berlin, he renovated the huge, spare Neue National Gallery, says Mabel Wilson, built by Mies van der Rohe in 1968. You know, that's an amazing modernist icon. That museum is actually one of my favorite buildings in the world. But the world is filled with hideous modern architecture. Sir David Chipperfield acknowledged this as a problem during a 2011 TEDx talk. And no wonder you hate us. He showed a slide of a building close to his home, a gloomy gray Holiday Inn. I mean, this, <laughs> this is appalling. The Holiday Inn contains the DNA, he said, of all bad modern architecture. A sort of cynical client that wants to get as many bedrooms onto the site as possible a construction industry consumed with finishing fast, and architects unconcerned about building for the future. We don't build very well anymore. And in that process, we've seemed to have lost the physical quality of architecture. Perhaps something metaphysical as well, suggests this year's Pritzker winner. Call it architecture's soul. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. It started with a tweet from the dictionary. The account behind Merriam-Webster asked people who were not native English speakers for examples of perfect words from their languages which don't have a direct equivalent in English. We asked some people who replied to tell us about them, their words tomorrow on the program. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, many Americans have exhausted their savings as credit card debt reaches a record high. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In sports, the Bruins and Celtics both have tonight off. The undefeated Red Sox take on the Atlanta Braves tonight in spring training. Sox have seven wins, no losses, and three ties. Tanner Houck starts for Boston. Meanwhile, Sox first baseman Justin Turner is recovering after a fastball struck him in the face in yesterday's game. Turner tweeted today that he didn't break any bones or teeth. He did have 16 stitches. He says he'll play again as soon as possible. Our cloud cover continues through the night tonight. Should stick 
stick around tomorrow and Thursday, too. Pretty windy through the stretch, temperatures holding to the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Recent infrastructure and climate laws could mean billions in grants for rural communities. This is kind of like our one shot, probably in my lifetime, of ever getting this much federal money to help us make improvements in the community. Who can help local officials negotiate a complicated process and take that shot? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. At a meeting during China's annual session of parliament yesterday, the country's leader Xi Jinping did something rare. He called out the U.S. by name and accused it of trying to contain and suppress China. NPR's John Ruich explains why that's a big deal. When the National People's Congress meets every March, China's top leaders like to drop in on breakout sessions. And on Monday, Xi Jinping sat in on one. They gave him a round of applause when he entered. And State TV reported on his remarks there. She said the external environment for China's development has changed dramatically. Western countries led by the U.S., she said, had implemented a comprehensive campaign to contain, encircle and suppress China. Manoj Keval Ramani is a China expert at the Takshashila Institution in India. He follows the language of China's leaders and propaganda closely. He says top Chinese leaders almost always try to avoid naming names to leave some diplomatic wiggle room. It's usually sort of some countries, individual countries, as opposed to there's never name checking. That was the case a few years ago when U.S. policy toward China shifted in a tough new direction under then-President Donald Trump. One of the things that people used to watch out for was whether anybody in the ecosystem specifically mentions him by name. And nobody ever mentioned him by name. At least not until Trump's presidency was winding down. Now, not only has Xi Jinping publicly called out the U.S., today his foreign minister, Qin Gang, amplified the message repeatedly in a press conference. He's saying the U.S. claims it wants to compete with and beat China. But that just means containment and suppression, he says, a zero-sum game of life and death. Scott Kennedy, with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, says the coordinated, tough messaging serves a purpose. If they are now talking explicitly about the U.S. as the source of all evil and the only obstacle in the way of China's rise to inevitable greatness, I think that means a lot. He says it sets a tone that officials throughout the Chinese system will have to follow. And it also may foreshadow a more forceful Chinese response to what Beijing sees as U.S. provocations. Just what that response could look like, though, isn't clear. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. While accepting an award for the Fablemans at this year's Golden Globes, Steven Spielberg made a startling assertion. I've been hiding from this story since I was 17 years old. He's been making movies pretty much nonstop since then, including Jaws, the Indiana Jones films, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan. But The Fablemans is different, a lightly fictionalized version of the filmmaker's own life. I told this story in parts and parcels all through my career. E.T. has a lot to do with this story. Close Encounters has a lot to do with the story. With the Fablemans nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, we asked critic Bob Mondello to tease out a few of the autobiographical references in Spielberg's earlier films. The Fablemans begins by dramatizing a story Spielberg's been telling interviewers for years about the first time his parents took him to a movie, The Greatest Show on Earth. It's a circus story, but its most famous scene is a train crash that terrified little Stevie, or Sammy, in the movie. In The Fablemans, Sammy goes home and, to his dad's distress, starts crashing his model train set over and over. Mom... Sammy? ...realizes he's trying to get past his fear and has an idea. We're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? 
Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. Watching what little Sammy comes up with in The Fablemans, it's hard not to think of the trains in Spielberg films, from the Indiana Jones movies to Schindler's List. And once you're in that origin story headspace, you'll start seeing parallels in other scenes. The clowning around with Fableman siblings as he starts making movies. Take off the blindfolds. Feels a whole lot like bits in E.T. And if you accept as autobiographical the scene where mom grabs the Fableman kids and drives straight towards a tornado... Come on! Let's go see! Is this safe? Of course it's safe. I'm your mother. It's clear where the inspiration came from for Richard Dreyfus grabbing the car and heading straight for the UFOs in Close Encounter. This is nuts. The mom and kid the Dreyfus character takes along for the ride are a sort of pickup family unit, not his own wife and kid, which makes sense when you know that Spielberg's parents divorced when he was still in his teens. In film after film, E.T. with its single mom, Jurassic Park with its unaccompanied grandkids, Empire of the Sun with its wartime separation of a boy and his parents, there are fractured families. Has Ma seen you dress like this? She came to pick up some boxes. She won't see me. In real life, Spielberg had a distant relationship with his father, whom he blamed for his parents' divorce, though it was his mother who'd strayed. Might that have been why he was attracted to the story of Catch Me If You Can? Your mother's married now to my friend Jack Barnes. They have a house in Long Island. Dad, she wouldn't do that. Why won't you sit down? Come why on, would she do that down. to you? Come on, sit with me, have a drink. I'm your father. After the filmmaker reconciled with his own dad, fathers in his films proved more sympathetic. Tom Cruise, for instance, dodging aliens with two kids in tow in War of the Worlds. What the hell is going on? You saw we're under attack! Wars of a more down-to-earth sort were Spielberg's starting point. In real life, after listening to his dad's pals talk about their World War II exploits and watching war movies on TV, the budding 16-year-old filmmaker deployed his Boy Scout troop in a half-hour battlefield epic called Escape to Nowhere. In The Fablemans, Sammy recreates it, Cut! matching camera angles and dime store effects, the germ, you might argue, of what would later be the shattering first half hour of Saving Private Ryan. Guess you based it on your dad's war stories, huh? Sort of. All these moments are detailed in The Fablemans, as is Jewish family life and encounters with anti-Semitism that informed the making of films like Munich and Schindler's List. But as a filmmaker who's often accused of having a Peter Pan complex, he let Fresh Air's Terry Gross know that his films are filled with personal tidbits that armchair psychologists can sleuth out if they want, say a tree outside his bedroom window that scared him as a toddler. It looked like arms and long fingers and long fingernails. And um, later, as an adult, when I wrote Poltergeist, I created a tree out the window that actually comes to life and grabs a kid and starts to suck him into one of its knot holes. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of small places, and I still am today. I'm very claustrophobic. I was a fearful kid. Really? Who'd have thunk? Decades ago, Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini, who'd just centered his movie Eight and a Half on a character who was a director, much like himself, said that all art is autobiographical, adding playfully, the pearl is the oyster's autobiography. A few years later, he released another Pearl, Amarcord, about his own youth, and that puts him in excellent company with the likes of Ingmar Bergman, Francois Truffaut, Spike Lee in Crooklyn, Alfonso Cuaron in Roma, Greta Gerwig in Lady Bird. But Spielberg, whose work has made him arguably the most popular filmmaker ever, his movies having out-earned those of all other directors at the box office, has made The Fablemans more than just a sentimental self-portrait. He's given audiences a glimpse of a filmmaker's childhood as a filmmaker, a sort of masterclass in how heart affects art. I'm Bob Mandela. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. 
and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. You're part of the WPUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It is this time tomorrow afternoon from 4 to 6.30. Details at WBUR.org slash open meetings. Overcast tonight in the upper 20s. Lots of clouds tomorrow and Thursday, too. Some strong winds. Temperatures right about 42 or 43 degrees for a high. Sunshine for real could return on Friday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, with a new food truck available for private parties and events in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Credit card debt is at a record high. Many Americans have exhausted their savings and are now deep in the hole trying to cover the cost of living. For a lot of people, this is not so much going out and buying something fancy. Just to keep up with where you were last year, you have to pay a lot more. It's Tuesday, March 7th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Mexico's president says a suspect has been arrested in the kidnapping of four Americans, two of whom have been found dead. Also, five women were denied abortions under Texas law while they faced medical crises. They're now suing the state and want a judge to clarify exceptions to Texas's abortion laws. And a fifth grade girls basketball team in Alabama had to join the boys league to keep its practice facility. The girls team won the championship but was denied the trophy. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. says it is working with Mexico to bring justice to those responsible for the kidnapping of U.S. citizens. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports two of the four Americans kidnapped were found dead after being abducted last week in Mexico. White House officials say the FBI, Justice Department, and Homeland Security Department have been working with Mexican authorities to learn more about the kidnapping. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the White House extends its deepest condolences to the families of those who were killed. Attacks on U.S. citizens are unacceptable no matter where or under what circumstances they occur. And we're going to work closely with the Mexican government to ensure that justice is done in this case. Kirby dismissed Republican criticism that Mexican cartels were emboldened by a lack of border enforcement and said the administration is working against transnational criminal organizations. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. The general in charge of U.S. military cyber operations says the agency is on high alert, watching to see if Russia ramps up digital attacks against Ukraine or its allies during a spring offensive. More from NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. General Paul Nagasoni is sharing more details about how U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency have supported Ukraine since Russia launched its full-scale invasion in February 2022. Speaking to the Senate Armed Services Committee, he said he sent a team to Kiev in December of 2021, where they spent 70 days helping shore up Ukraine's digital defenses. Nakasoni also said Cyber Command is continuing to support Ukraine with what he described as full-spectrum operations. As winter fades into spring, the Pentagon will also be waiting to see if Russia ramps up offensive cyber operations. Nakasoni warned that is a real possibility, and Russia remains a very capable adversary in cyberspace. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. The Justice Department is confirming it's suing to block JetBlue Airways from buying Spirit Airlines. One major concern of regulators is the type would especially hurt budget-minded flyers. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell warned today the central bank may have to push interest rates higher than previously expected. NPR Scott Horsley reports on Powell's testimony to the Senate Banking Committee. Powell says while inflation has cooled off some from its four-decade high last summer, prices are still climbing much too fast. And recent reports of robust job growth and consumer spending suggest the Fed may have to be even more aggressive in raising interest rates in order to tamp down demand and get prices under control. Although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go and is likely to be bumpy. 
Powell hinted that unless upcoming data point to lower inflation, he and his colleagues may opt for a larger half-percentage-point interest rate hike at their next meeting later this month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local advocates for immigrants are criticizing President Joe Biden. They are upset the White House is considering whether to reinstate a policy to detain families who illegally cross into the U.S. from Mexico. Elizabeth Sweet is the executive director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. She says the former policy is cruel and inhumane. She spoke of a visit she made to a detention center. Seeing very young children and even babies being held by their mothers in detention centers was deeply disturbing and and something that I hope and my colleagues hope this administration does not pursue. She says the Biden administration should instead focus on bolstering the country's asylum application process and its refugee resettlement program. Governor Maura Healey's tax relief package contains a plan to double the maximum credit for homeowners who repair or replace their septic tank. The credit would apply to primary residences only. It would cover 40 percent of the actual cost, up to $12,000. State officials are trying to get more people to replace septic tanks. One reason is that failing septic systems are the leading cause of water pollution on Cape Cod. Voters across the state support local rent control by a 65 to 25 percent margin. That's according to a new poll by political consulting firm Northwind Strategies. Company founder Doug Rubin says the survey asked whether communities should have the authority to impose measures to limit rent increases. Rent control was very well supported. It was over 70 percent among young people and also among seniors. And so this is an issue that kind of spans generations and there's a lot of concern. Rubin says the survey also found 68 percent support among Massachusetts voters for a rent stabilization proposal from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. It would cap rent hikes for many properties to 10 percent annually. And shark researchers say they identified 55 new white sharks in the waters off Cape Cod last year. Today, the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy released its annual updated catalog.